0: Well, thank you to Josie and to the band for leading us. Now, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 today, and you'll find that on page 956 in the church Bibles. As you turn up that, there's also a lot of notes inside the service sheet in the middle of the page, and I'll explain why there's lots today a little bit later on. But let's read these verses together first. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll read in from verse 1 just to get the context. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, though former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... and ask for God's help as we study this together. Our dear Father, please help us to use our freedoms as Christians in a way that shows a loving concern for other Christians. Help us to understand what that looks like practically. Help us to listen to your word and do what it says. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, these chapters in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are all about how we use our freedoms as Christians. Freedoms that we have as Christians are where the Bible doesn't say you can't do that, or indeed in many cases where the Bible says you can do that as a Christian. You know the gospel, you know the Bible well, and you are free to do this or that or the other as a Christian. And what Paul is doing in these chapters is saying, yes, you have these freedoms as a Christian, And we'll give you lots of examples of what they are.
1: But think about how you use these freedoms wisely.
0: Yes, you're free to do this or that or the other. But is it, here are the questions that Paul addresses in these chapters, is it bringing glory to God? Does it honor God? What about other Christians? Might you using your freedoms trip them up or cause them to stumble or stop their maturing as Christians? What about myself? Is it good for
1: me to do these things? And what about people who are not yet Christians?
0: How can I use my freedoms wisely to help people become Christians? That's what these chapters are about, and it's got... A whole lot of helpful material in it about real-life practical stuff as Christians. Today's concern in verses 4 through 13 of chapter 8 is about how I use my freedoms wisely with respect to other Christians, okay? That's the focus of these uh, verses. Now, let me just crack through the headings before we get to the principle Who are the other Christians I should be concerned about? Now, the first answer to that is, I think, every other Christian that you know personally, people whose lives your actions as a Christian might affect, other Christians that know you, that look to you perhaps, that your actions might affect them. It certainly means other Christians in your church family, and particularly in the small group where you really do get to know each other. It will include Christians, you know, in other contexts. For example, many of you will be in a hall group or um, in the CU, for example, or other Christians you've got to know through a camp, Christian friends who go to other churches, And it also, and this was an insight from one of the small groups this week, which is very helpful, it also includes other Christians in our families, perhaps our children, if we have children, who are young Christians, or perhaps many of you who are students, you might have a younger sibling at home, a young Christian, or at school, other family members who are Christians. Christians. And we should be concerned for all the Christians we know personally to use our freedoms in a way that shows a loving concern for them to build them up in their faith. But Paul has a particular concern in these verses, not simply for all Christians we know well, but particularly for what we might describe as vulnerable Christians, people who have perhaps been recently converted, Christians who don't yet have all the knowledge that we have, who haven't come to terms with all the implications of the gospel, who've perhaps only listened to 20 sermons in their life, who've only been to one Bible study on one Bible book. They're young in their faith, real Christians, but young in their faith. And in our culture, which is so thoroughly secular, when people are converted, they will be converted out of a world that is so very different from the Christian world. Now, that's the people that we should be thinking um, of. And if you've got real live examples in your mind, that's good. Just carry them with you through the the rest of of the talk. Let's get stuck into the verses and get the principle clear in our minds. Verses 1 to 3, in summary, and we looked at that last week, uh, knowledge should build up, not uh, puff up. Now, there's a collective weight of academic knowledge in this room. Some of it realized, some of it not yet realized, but will be over the next three or four years. You add that across a church like Chalmers to all the professional knowledge, whether in medicine or or law or accountancy or joinery or plumbing or whatever it is, there's a lot of knowledge in a church like this, and that knowledge could puff us up. We know the dangers of academic knowledge puffing us up. Let's be really careful as a church family not to let our Christian knowledge puff us up. And we're talking about Christians perhaps who've been Christians for a long time. Don't get puffed up in what you know. Don't stand over in the corner over coffee and say, look, I know this,
1: I'm right. Knowledge is important but it's not to puff us up, it
0: is to build us up. All Christian knowledge is to build up believers in their faith. All Christian knowledge that you or I have is to build up other believers as well as ourselves. Verse 4a is a presenting issue in Corinth. The eating of food or meat offered a sacrifice to idols. Um, we need to get back to first century Corinth and understand that idol worship was just everywhere in that city. You'd be hard-pressed to get any meat in any place that hadn't been sacrificed to an idol. The pagan mix of spirituality in Corinth was just everywhere. The business, the commercial life of the city, all the restaurants where you would socialize, they were all in the precincts of the temple. If you went out to your friend's house for dinner, you would almost certainly get meat sacrificed to idols unless they'd gone to waitress. Everywhere
1: else it was just meat sacrificed to idols. We know, verse 4b, that an idol is no
0: real existence. Why is the speech marks there in the text? Probably because Paul was quoting from a letter the church in Corinth had written to him or a slogan that was common usage among the Christians in Corinth. And in culture where idols were everywhere, after church on a Sunday, there'd be a little group over there, and the kind of slogan they'd be using an idol has no real existence.
1: An idol has no real existence, and that's true. It's right. It's just wood or metal. And Paul is agreeing with them. So when it comes to meat
0: offered to idols, it's just a cow and it's just a bit of wood. So there's no issue eating the meat. And Paul is saying, you're right. You're quite right. Indeed, right through this section of the letter, chapter 8, Paul is agreeing with them that food sacrifice to idols is a matter of Christian freedom. It's not wrong. Now, there's one instance in chapter 10 when he says it's wrong. if that it's demonic activity around the sacrificing of the, idol, the animals. But the basic principle is that it's not wrong. It's a matter of Christian freedom. We know that an idol has no real existence. An idol has no real existence, verse 4c, because there is no God but one. There's only one living God. And the God of the Bible is not a bit of wood. It's a person, Father, Son, and Spirit.
1: And at this point, Paul presses pause. And he wants the preacher to pause. And we get verses
0: five and six, which doesn't say anything new, but it's a pause. Let me read them. For although there may be so called gods in heaven and on earth, whether then or now in our culture, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. When you read that in English in the translation, you can't read it quickly. It almost slows you down. I'm not sure if the Greek is the same, but we have got to slow down at this point. And what a radical, radical thing that Paul is reminding us of. There is one true and living God,
1: one true and living God, the God of the Christian faith, the God revealed to us in the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
0: Paul is pressing pause to ask us the question, do you believe that? Because it means atheists are wrong. It means Buddhists are wrong. It means that Muslim people are wrong, but don't. Muslim people believe in one true and living God, Allah. Muslims believe that Allah is a complete God without Jesus. Jesus is a prophet but not God. And God is not complete without Christ. Such a God does not exist. Now, is such an attitude not disrespectful to other religions? So much of what Paul is writing in these very applied and relevant chapters is is uh, counter-cultural. Someone suggested to me in an email this past week, keep coming with the emails, we do appreciate them, that even to think of others now, whether Christians or non-Christians, is in some ways in our culture, in terms of some of the educational trends, lacking integrity. Because what matters is me. What matters is me. Is it not disrespectful? Well, surely to respect people from other religions is to speak to them with truth. There are aspects of Christianity and Islam that we have in common, that we agree on, but the stuff that really matters, we don't. Would it not rather be disrespectful to pretend that we agree. Now, there are regularly people in chamers from different religions. There were some at the first service, maybe there are some now. I want to say to you, you are really welcome. And I and I, I hope that you really do know that and experience that. I respect you and your
1: views. But I want to be honest with you. That we that we find truth. Now Summarizing Paul's argument to this point, uh,
0: as to the eating of meat offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So yes, I agree that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a matter of Christian freedom. So just think over there, coffee afterwards in Corinth, there's a little group of people and, and here's what they're discussing. Um, that was helpful again, another sermon on, on food sacrificed to idols. You know, we know between us, don't we? We know that, that, that that's just... The idol is nothing at all. There is only one true and living God. Therefore, it's fine. Let's all go off for lunch. See these people over there? They're not yet there. They just need to get their act together and come
1: to terms with this. Now, that's wrong. It's wrong. Verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge.
0: Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Not every Christian, Paul says, has yet come to a mature understanding about idols. Yes, they're just wood and yes, it's just a cow. But Paul says not everybody's yet got there in their understanding. They're real Christians, but they're not yet there. They were so steeped in that culture for so long Their association with idol worship was so strong that they're still holding on to a belief, albeit mistaken, that in some way the idols are real. And in eating that food, they are going to defile themselves before God. Paul is not saying they're right. In fact, he is saying they are wrong. But you don't go from your little huddle to these people and say, you're wrong. You've got to sort yourself out. Paul is saying, be really careful, be really cautious. They haven't yet come to a mature understanding where their conscience is robust enough to say with conviction, an idol has no real existence, there is no God but one. They may get to that point of maturity, but they are not yet there. And Paul says, be really careful with them. By what you do, lest you cause them to stumble as a new Christian, the onus is on you as the mature Christian to take the responsibility. And in these chapters, all the way through, the onus is on the mature Christian. The onus is on the Christian who really does have the robust conscience to say it's just an idol and it's just food. To set aside their freedom for the sake of the Christian that doesn't yet have that maturity of understanding. Now, verse 8, I'm not entirely sure what verse 8, I've kind of swung between two readings of it, but let me say what I think it's saying. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off with, if we do. With respect to our salvation, eating or not eating makes no difference. It might affect our health, but it won't affect our salvation. And that's what he's saying. Eating or not eating won't make us any more or less acceptable to God. Eating food sacrificed to idols will not make us any more or any less acceptable to God. It really is, Paul says, a matter of Christian freedom. But that sets him up for verse 9. Take care that this, and notice he doesn't use the word freedom, that this right. It's almost as if somebody in the corner is saying, well, this is my right. I don't care what they think. It's my right to do this.
1: Take care that... This right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to a weak Christian. Yes, it's an area of Christian freedom. It's your right to do
0: this, but take care, be very careful that in doing this, you are not somehow causing another Christian whose conscience is weak to stumble, to trip them up in their faith. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to stand on your rights if it causes another Christian to stumble. After all, we're talking about eating food, which doesn't
1: commend you to God any more than not eating it or any less. Now, as the stronger Christian, it's your responsibility
0: to tear aside your freedom for the weaker Christian. Would you do that? Will you do that? I think we would and we will. What's perhaps happening for many of us for the first time, we're starting to
1: think like this. We're starting to think, is this going to damage somebody if I do it? And if, as a church, and this is our real heart's desire, after Redeemer plants and for
0: Redeemer, that the churches grow with people becoming Christians, these questions will become more and more real for us. Now, I said earlier that if I had a concern for this uh, motto series, in fact, I didn't say it in the service because I quickly got into the uh, verses, that what I would have said uh, in the intro is my concern for this series is that we have great discussions in our small groups, but it doesn't change us.
1: It doesn't change us. Now, here in verses 10 and 11, we move from the realm of
0: discussion to reality. This, these are strong verses. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. A mature Christian in Corinth, someone with a strong conscience, clear in their knowledge that an idol has no real existence and that there's only one God, is just a bit of wood that cow has been sacrificed to. It's just a cow. That mature Christian goes to one of the restaurants in the temple. Their faith is strong. They know their salvation is in Christ alone. Eating that food is not going to make any difference to them. But a recent convert who's much less mature in their understanding, in their knowledge, sees the person with knowledge, a Christian they respect, maybe the Christian that led them to Jesus. Doing this, so they conclude that it must be fine to do it. And so following the example of the mature Christian they go and eat in the idol's temple... And they discover they're back in a world that was not good for them. And they find that their conscience is weaker than they thought. They're not going to use categories like that to describe how they feel. It's just that their their mates from their life before are going to be there. And they're going to say, it's great to see you back. Come and dine with us tomorrow night. Come back tomorrow. And they're lured and they're drawn and week by week. And in time, they turn away from Jesus and go back to worshipping idols. And so, Paul says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother from whom Christ died. Now, that takes us from the realm of interesting discussions in our small group
1: to real reality. We're that close in the text from saying, you caused them to stumble. Now, Paul presses pause again,
0: really wanting this to sink in. Verse 12 simply emphasizes what he has just said, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. What does it mean to wound somebody's conscience? Let me uh, go to one of the examples on the right-hand side of the service sheet. Let's take the second one down. I'm free to drink alcohol and go with my Christian friends to the pub or to the restaurant, whatever. Now, most Christians, most Christians would consider this as an area of freedom, the choice of whether or not to drink alcohol. They may or not do it for other reasons, but it would be an area of Christian freedom. Drunkenness is a very different matter. We are not free to do that. Now, you've got it clear in your minds that this is an area of Christian freedom, And you are able to go out with the other Christians to the restaurant or to the pub or whatever and drink sensibly. You meet people, Christians and unbelievers, and you are finding opportunities to share your faith with unbelievers. But what if there is a person in your group that has recently been converted and you become aware that before they were a Christian, nights out in an environment like that for them were far from sensible. One thing led to another and they would regularly drink far
1: too much, and other stuff happened as a result. And you inadvertently, perhaps, take them back to that culture,
0: which is an area of Christian freedom and for them, and you do so
1: not in a sense without concern for them. You just don't think. Or you think they might be stronger in their conscience now than they are. And they do fine for a few visits, and then one night, they stay after you've gone, and they blow it. And they
0: feel guilt, and that's the wounded conscience. They feel guilt. Now, some of you have been Christians for a long time. I warrant that you are not yet free of the occasional feelings of guilt, What about if you have become a Christian out of a life and a world that is so very, very different? You will carry a great deal of guilt with you. And a Christian, their conscience is wounded, they feel guilty. What does a young Christian do in a situation like that? They they don't come back to their group or to the church because they feel guilty. Another risk in that example is that you take that Christian with you and they think in their early years as a Christian or the early month as a Christian that you can have two lives that run side by side like train tracks. You can have that life and you can have that life and that's okay. And what happens is that over time they, they, they let go of this life and go back to that life.
1: Yes, you're free to do this. And let me underscore that. Yes, you are. And we're not talking about other Christians who may take a different view. You respect
0: that and listen to them. We're not talking about other Christians whose faith is strong.
1: We're talking about vulnerable Christians, people that your actions could really damage. Be careful. Be careful. And uh, therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, let
0: I make my brother stumble. If eating meat that's been sacrificed to idol is causing my brothers to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Now, that might mean nothing to many of us here in our culture, but in their culture, it was a very big deal. Let me just translate into our culture. If uh, drinking alcohol means that my uh, brother or my sister, uh, another Christian, perhaps in my family, is going to stumble, I will never do it again. That's what he's saying. Is that a big cost? Is that a big sacrifice? Who is the comparator here? Jesus Christ, who gave all his life, set aside it all for them. Will I not set aside that freedom for the sake of another? That's a good example. Okay, in my flat, I know that one of my flatmates, a Christian, really struggles with pornography on their computer. Now, I love watching uh, films, you might say, on my laptop in my room at night. That's fine. I don't struggle with internet, but they do. So what about I'm going to sacrifice that little freedom and I'm going to leave my laptop in the kitchen on the table and that's where we watch stuff.
1: What's the comparison? Jesus gave everything away for their Salvation. Or I love to go away at weekends. That's great. You are
0: absolutely free to go away at weekends. I want you to know that. You're absolutely free. And so you are. But what about, and this was a real live conversation in the
1: first service. Don't tell him I told him. Don't tell him. This man turned to his person he was with. And he said, when, when, we were, when you were growing up, did it, what impact did it have on you that, that we were away all the time at weekends and holidays? And he didn't answer, his dad. And his dad said, well, I think it didn't help you in your faith because we gave you the impression that you didn't need to gather with God's people. That's the kind of thing. Therefore, if it makes another Christian to stumble, I will never eat meat again.
0: Now, that's the principle, and I hope that working through these verses has helped us understand it. Here's a short summary. That I will limit my freedoms, indeed give them up if need be, for the sake of other Christians who know less than me, and whose conscience is perhaps weaker than mine. That is cross-shaped. It's not me-centered Christian living in a church, and it makes a world of a difference. Now, Uh, Two questions, then some examples to close. Both these questions came up in preparation this week. How do we know what people's weaknesses are? Are we not in danger of wounding people's consciences all the time without knowing we're doing it? It's not about that, these verses. It's not meant to make us paranoid. It's not meant to make us paranoid. It's meant to make us loving towards those we know whose background, whose circumstances we know. And as well as that, our faith is a supernatural faith. And if we think like this, God will know what's going on. Within the context of a small group in a church, these are the kinds of things, what is it that causes you to stumble? What is it that you struggle with that we should be able to ask one another and pray for one another? And if we are involved in evangelism and reading the Bible with someone, we will get to know them. And if they are converted, praise God, remember that it will take them time to grow in their knowledge and for their conscience to be strengthened. How do we know what people's weaknesses are? We can't always know But what Paul is teaching us here is to be our default principle, a mindset that thinks, a mindset that thinks, perhaps for the first time as a Christian, Yes, I am free to do this, but I will not stand in my rights. I will think, is this helpful to that other Christian that I know, or will it wound their conscience and cause them to stumble? Now, one last thing to say before the examples the principle can be misunderstood or misused. Let me explain. We're not in the realm here in these verses. Of limiting our freedoms as Christians because another Christian might not agree with what we're doing. If that was the case, we wouldn't do anything. Because someone will always disagree. Someone once told me at a seminar on Christian leadership: if you have 365 people in the church and each of them has something, one thing wrong a year, that's a, a moan every day. Okay? We're not going to agree on some of these things. We need to recognize them as. Freedoms. This is not about another Christian with a lot of knowledge and maturity and a strong conscience disagreeing with us or questioning us. That's as may be, and you need to listen to them carefully and respectfully. That's not the realm we're in. What this is about is limiting our freedoms in situations where another Christian's faith or Christian life or Christian walk might be damaged by what we do, their growth or maturity it is whether my actions will harm another Christian. It's not about another strong and mature Christian that might want to have a debate with me about whether this is a Christian freedom or not. It's about damaging somebody. Now, in time, they may come to a maturity of knowledge and understanding. And they may need no longer to limit their freedoms, but until that happens, you need to be awfully careful How might someone misuse the principle? Well, to get their way, to manipulate people, to control people. Or, and this is in Colossians, uh, to pass judgment on them. The attitude that says, I don't think that what that Christian is doing is right. In other words, I don't think your freedoms are right. If what we're judging in another's Christian life is within the realm of their freedoms, then we need to be very careful what we're probably doing is expressing our preference to them. Paul pressed pause a couple of times in the chapter. Let me, as the minister, press pause here as we come to the list of examples. Let's not fall into the trap of judging one another. If we sit on the line of being distinctive in the world, many of us who have come from a much more Christian culture in the past are in real danger of falling into a mindset that starts judging. We've got to be strong and robust in our minds. Where are the areas of freedom? Let's not judge one another. The reason I've given so many examples is because I've worked really hard this week, as hard as I can, so that no one thinks anyone is getting at them. Let's not fall into that trap. If we do so, if we fall into that trap and your conversations on the way home in the car are along the lines of this or on the bike or wherever you do, judging each other for the use of freedoms, we've totally miss the point. Here's a realistic conversation. Look, I struggle as a Christian with Christians who do that. I do struggle, let's be honest, I, I do. But I, I understand that it's an area of Christian freedom. I'm going to pray that they use that freedom wisely for the sake of other believers. That's the take-home from this part of Corinthians. Now, let me apply the principle, and I only have time to touch on a a few of these. They're all real examples from people's real lives and the examples that you're discussing in your small groups. Let's go down the list to, I'm free to meet with my Christian friends to listen to music. Um, Is that an area of Christian freedom? Yes. Now, you've got to be wise what you listen to. Um, it's an area of Christian freedom. But say there is somebody who comes into your small group. Say your small group is, say you want to go to a, a gig or whatever it is to listen to a band and you're going to invite some non-Christians along. That's a good thing to do. I think it is a good thing to do. I'd be right behind you praying for you. But What if you discover that somebody in your group is a new Christian, that culture and that world that they were in was a really unhelpful culture for them. Might not be for you, you're able to go and discern, and when a song comes on the track that's inappropriate, your faith is such and your conscience is robust enough that you're able to, to kind of block it out. But what if somebody isn't? And they get drawn back into a culture for which, from which they 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 were they were rescued out of that culture. What do you do? You change your small group activity. You do that. It's just sensible. What about I'm free-to-play sport on a Sunday? Well, let me give you the example of some real um, folks in a church like Chalmers. People involved at a senior level of university sport. they play sport on a Sunday. They make sure they're back, they do their studies, and they come to a service on a Sunday, usually at night. They plug into focus on a Tuesday. They are strong Christians. They go to lots of camps in the summer. They come from strong Christian homes. They are strong Christians. That's an area of freedom. But I encourage them to think, well, look out for perhaps a new Christian in your group. Someone who's not got that robustness in their mind to say, look, whatever else happens, I'm going to make sure I meet with my church family. What do you do with them? You talk to them, you protect them, they look up to you, help them, encourage them, that kind of stuff. I'm free to let my kids go to parties on Sundays. That, I was very clear to point out in service one that that didn't come from me, that example. It's a great example, though. And, of course, um, why is it a good example? Because, because a, 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 a young Christian, a vulnerable Christian, could be your kid. What message does it give to a child if they think, because of your actions as a parent or because of what you let them do and don't do, that we only go to church to meet with our fellow Christians when there isn't a party on Sundays. I mean, that's where you could get to. I don't know the answer to that. I think there's a balanced, wise answer somewhere in here. But you kids have got to realize, and a new Christian has got to realize, that, that, that that loving the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest idol in your life. It's the greatest object of worship. I'm free to watch films on my computer in my room late at night. I gave you that example. Or how about this? I'm free to go back to work after small group to get my work done. It's a personal example here. I'm a, probably a bit of a workaholic. That's a bad thing. The, here's a positive thing. I've got a big capacity for working long hours. I've always done that, and I always have done that. That's okay. That's an area of Christian freedom. But if one of the guys who's starting work here or training for ministry sees me up there at 11 o'clock at night, and I give them the impression that that's what you've got to do, that's not good. Think of somebody doing that in office. They they work in their office, say they're a partner in in a law firm, they come to small group, and they go back to the office to finish a transaction. That's perfectly within their Christian freedoms. But if that's what a young Christian thinks you need to do, and that Christian does not have that capacity,
1: then what they'll start missing is the small group. And they'll start losing out. And they'll not be fed.
0: Now, just to say, these are real live examples from people in the church as we think these things through. Let's touch on... I'm free to attend my friend's same-sex wedding. Why touch on this? It's a complex issue, and many of you are asking about this and talking about this. It's a real issue now in our culture. The Bible is clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. A valid question, though, is should I go when I'm invited? That's a good question. It's not a straightforward question to answer, and over the course of 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, we'll try to build up what's a wise set of principles to make a decision. But the particular contribution of these verses here in chapter 8... It's whether going to that wedding will cause another Christian to stumble. For example, someone who before they were converted was very much part of that lifestyle, and, and seeing you at the wedding might encourage them to think that you were indifferent to that or approving of it, or, 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 or they then think it's, it's okay, or there's a due life, or whatever it
1: is. Now, that's a complicated area, but it's real, this question. And all Paul is saying, Luke, think, think lovingly, not selfishly. What about I'm free to go away lots of weekends and holidays? Well, I touched on that. Let me go to the
0: last one. I'm free to spend a lot of money on my house, hobbies, clothes, etc. Now, for some of you, that's very hypothetical here. Some of you have been telling me the cheapest meals you can buy as a student.
1: Cheesy pasta four days a week. Some of you are not eating meat because you can't afford to.
0: We live in a very materialistic culture. I mean, we really, really do. There are three levels of wealth in the Bible, adequacy, poverty, luxury. We're all at the top. What about a Christian that, for example, before they were a Christian... Spends loads of money they don't have, runs out credit card bills, designer labels, whatever it is. Or go on in life. This new car, that new car, this new house, that new whatever it is, none of that is wrong. It's all within the realm of Christian freedoms. But if you have a Christian friend who comes to faith and they are rescued out of an environment where that was so unhelpful to them because they were running up massive debts, massive debts, because their identity was not in Christ in something else. What do you do? Well, Jesus died and gave up everything for them. Will you give up that new bike, new car for a year or two just to protect them till they come in their conscience to be robust and strong? Now, many more examples, what you folks will do in your small groups is wrestle through the examples in your real situations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that these principles will bed down into our minds and hearts and that we will apply them well and wisely in our lives. Help us, Lord, to adopt that mindset that shows a loving concern for our fellow believers. Help us not to be me-focused in our Christian lives, but lovingly focused on others, for Jesus' sake. Amen.